0: Today we're gonna wrap up the book of James by talking about prayer. Now I hate to admit it, but I feel like I have kind of an unhealthy relationship with prayer. Um, It's just that uh, I feel like most of my prayers are selfish, self-focused prayers, you know, God give me, God help me, God do this, whatever it is for me, right? And I have a hunch that I'm not totally alone in this, right? I'm not the only one I'm sure that tends to pray selfish prayers. Um, I've noticed that, you know, as I've gotten older, my prayers have changed a lot, but they still tend to be more on the selfish side. you know, for instance, when I was like sixteen, I remember I remember praying uh, for a nineteen eighty one or nineteen eighty Corvette. It was black and i just wanted it so bad and i wanted my parents to give it to me and i prayed god find some way for that camaro to be mine and i prayed a lot for that thing but uh, god didn't answer that prayer because he knew that i'd kill myself if i had a car that fast um so that's what i prayed when i was younger and now you know that i'm older i pray things like god the kids were in the sprinkler a lot this month please don't let my water bill be too high Uh, Which, if you don't understand that prayer, it's because in Loami, the water is crazy expensive. And, you know, maybe you've prayed similar selfish prayers. Maybe you've prayed similar, you know, boring old people prayers like I do. Maybe you've prayed, uh, Dear Lord, please don't let my spouse be home and all those packages I ordered from Amazon show up. They'll kill me. Please don't (laughs) let that be there or them be there. Uh, We know we have those kinds of prayers, but they tend to be more on the selfish side and i think if we're honest the main way that we try to use prayer is to get what we want we try to just get what we want and we pray more often when we want something but as we get into our passage today james is going to let us know that that's really not the purpose of prayer and when we only focus our our prayers on ourselves we are missing one of the most amazing powerful benefits prayer. So let's go ahead and dive in. We'll be in James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So in the passage right before uh, this one, the one we looked at last week, James talks about how Christians can endure times of suffering. And I think that James is continuing that theme of suffering all the way through this passage. And as he starts to kind of add in the topic of prayer or move into the topic of prayer, um, he gives us this very natural bit of advice. He's like, are you hurting? Are you suffering? Well, then pray. Uh, this is one of those times, when, t- in times of suffering, it's, it's so common for us to turn to prayer. Um, it's just like natural. After nat- national tragedies, after personal tragedies, people turn to prayer. And, you know, maybe it goes back a little bit to that we pray more often than when we want something. And those seasons of prayer, usually we want to, the pain to go away, the, the hurting to stop. And so we pray more. And that's not a bad thing to do. James says that's the right thing to do is to pray in those seasons. In fact, I would argue that one of the main reasons why God lets us actually go through those seasons that overwhelm us and push us to and even past our limit is so that we will turn to him. So it's not bad for that, but James says that's not the only reason of prayer, to turn and try to get something from God or to get help from God. There's more to this relationship with him, and there's more to prayer than just asking for what we want. And so he goes on to say, well, hey, is something going good in your life, or are you cheerful? Well, then sing praise. And singing praise is and can be a form of prayer. The The Old Testament book of Psalms, which this verse is kind of hinting back to, it was a a, prayer, a, a book of prayers and a, their songbook, ancient Israel's songbook. And so he's saying, are things good? Well, then, yeah, pray. Even sing those praise because, you know, like a musical, good moments are supposed to bring our hearts to a song, apparently. Um, but this is less natural for us, isn't it? I mean, I think it's, again, really easy for us to turn to God when life is bad, and it's really easy for us to forget him when life is good. When we hit seasons of joy and prosperity, we often get so caught up in enjoying the blessings we've been given that we forget to stop and praise the one who's given them. I mean, I've been guilty of this more times than I can count. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down for a meal and I've just been so excited to eat whatever it was that I never stopped to thank God or consider how grateful I was to even have food on my plate. And James, he says... We've got to focus prayer on more than just these moments when we want something. It's not Prayer isn't meant to be this thing that just kind of pops up sporadically in moments of life when we have a need. But prayer is supposed to be this thing that shows up in our lives on good days and bad days, in sad moments and cheerful moments. We are to look to God no matter what is happening in our life. Prayer should be a constant part of our lives. And another thing... That we get wrong about prayer is, you know, we think, okay, well, well, we we tend to pray more when it's, you know, sporadically, right, when we when we want something. But another thing we get wrong about prayer is we often tend to think of prayer as kind of a very private thing. And I don't know if this if it's that we want prayer to be a private thing, or if we think, you know, my faith is just kind of my own personal thing, and we don't like sharing it, or if it's just the fact that we're we're scared to pray in front of people. I mean. A lot of people. It's very common for Christians to be nervous about praying in front of other people. We don't want to say something dumb, or, or you know, feel like, what if I think I know how to pray and I really don't, and I leave something out that's important, and people think I'm a bad Christian. You know, we just get nervous praying around people. And my guess is that a lot of you have never prayed out loud around someone else. Um, You know, we tend to pray silently. You know, um, as we, you know, put our head on our pillow at night and say amen in our heads, and, and maybe the only time you pray out loud is maybe when you're in your car driving to work, and you know that no one's around in the back seat to hear you, and so you feel comfortable talking out loud to God, but when other people are around, ooh, let's keep it to ourselves, and and James is getting ready to kind of blow that idea that prayer is this personal thing. He's getting ready to blow that idea to pieces because James is going to say that one huge aspect of prayer was that there was meant to be a community part of it, an aspect to prayer where we were praying together, that so much of prayer's power comes when we pray together for one another. Let's go on to verse 14. He says, "Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith and the, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, I spent a lot of time studying this; these uh, two verses. Most of my time studying went into these two verses. And I really changed kind of how I read these two verses, because I've always read them just kind of at face value. That, okay, it's talking about somebody who's maybe really, really sick, so weak from being sick that they can't get out of bed. And so, um, kind of as this last-ditch effort, they call the elders to come pray over them um, and anoint them with oil. And if the elders do that and everybody has enough faith, then the prayer is going to just heal them. Jesus will heal the person. Voila, kind of like this guaranteed recipe you know, for, for he- being healed even of maybe a terminal illness. Um, but when you read it about, like, as if these verses are just about a person who is sick and trying to, to find physical healing, Um, this whole chunk of Scripture becomes very disjointed. And I think there's a better way to read it that actually makes sense with the entire passage and kind of makes it a lot more uh, cohesive. And so instead of talking about a person who I think is sick, I think James is talking about a person who is on the brink of losing their faith. And the reason that I think that comes down to that that word sick. Uh, You see, the New Testament was written in an ancient form of Greek that's now a dead language. Um, And it has been translated into English uh, in the Bibles that we read today. And this word that gets translated sick is a word that can also mean weak. And it's used in the New Testament a lot of times, and it's used both ways. In the Gospels, um, most of the time this word is used, it's translated as sick, and it's talking about somebody who has a physical illness. But in the book of Acts and in a lot of the letters that make up the New Testament, when this word is used, it's used to talk about weakness. More specifically, someone who has a weakened faith, someone who is struggling to believe, someone who isn't strong or confident in their belief in Jesus and is kind of losing their hope in their faith. And so I think it makes a lot more sense as you read this passage that James is talking about a person whose faith has been weakened through a season of suffering and pain. And I think one of the, because one of the most common times when we're going to struggle and doubt is in a season of pain. I mean, I would guess that a lot of us who are Christians um, have had life dish us these really unpleasant moments that we couldn't make sense of. And we got so tired of hurting that we cried out to God, God, where are you? God, are you even helping me? God, are you even real? God, are you listening? Why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you fixing this? And it's incredibly common that his life is beating you down to get discouraged and to start doubting God's goodness and his presence in your life. Because the harder life gets and the longer that season of suffering goes on, it gets incredibly easy to be frustrated and deflated. And maybe that's how some of you feel during this season of pandemic, quarantine, isolation, whatever you want to call it. Maybe you, it's been going on for so long and you're thinking, come on, why Why is this going on? Why? Where is God in all of this? Um, in fact, that's one of the most common things I've been asked is, what's the deal here? Where is God in all of this? And what James here is going to do, though, is he's going to begin giving us, or he's giving us the tools to keep ourselves and others from drifting away from faith. He's going to keep give us this amazing tool to keep us from, Losing our faith in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of doubt. And the best way, according to James, to strengthen faith is the prayer-filled support of a church family. Our church family is the best way to combat this um, problem of having a a faith that's getting weakened by doubt or struggle or sin. We need each other. That's that community aspect of of prayer that, that I was talking about a minute ago. But unfortunately, what a lot of people do when they feel, you know, like their faith is weakening or they feel doubts or struggles is they kind of start to lean away from their church family. And James says, "No, no, no, this isn't the time to lean away. This is the time to lean in. This is when you need your church family more than ever. And that's why he gives us these instructions. You're struggling. Don't struggle alone call the elders in. Have them come and pray for you, pray over you, because Christians are supposed to support each other and to be the, the the physical presence of Jesus for each other. We're supposed to show up in each other's lives and love like Jesus loved and serve like Jesus served and encourage as Jesus has encouraged us. And so the elders are to come uh, in this moment when uh, or they were supposed to come in this moment as a way for the church family to, to show up and to be a reminder saying, I know you're hurting, but God gave you us to, to love you and support you and encourage you through this. So he hasn't abandoned you. He's given you us. And this um, says they, they prayed for him, and then he, he says the elders will also anoint this person with oil. Now that initially at first seems like a, a, some sort of special religious ceremony, and there are times throughout Scripture, a lot of them in fact, where this idea of anointing something with oil does have a lot of spiritual significance, but I'm not sure that's what's going on here because there were two Greek words that could be translated as uh, to anoint. One was in the more religious context, or at least it was more often used that way, and one word was more often used just in the normal everyday sense of putting oil on something, and that's the word that is used here, and the word anoint, it actually is just a word that means to smear or rub oil on something or someone. Um, it was actually a pretty normal, everyday thing for them in the ancient Middle East. It seems really weird to us. I mean, I've never like poured olive oil in my hand and like rubbed it on my face or my arms. But that was something that they did. You see, in the dry, dry, hot climate of the Middle East, what they did in the ancient world was many times they would take olive oil, and it would be boiled with spices or herbs that would make it be very um, aromatic, and they would rub that on their skin, rub it through their hair, um, to kind of combat the dry cracked skin that could happen in that kind of climate. And, and there were times like I said, when anointing had religious implications where you anointed someone um, to symbolically represent the presence and power of, of God in their life um, or to set them or to say this person is set apart for some special work for God. Um, but also anointing with olive oil, usually olive oil, it was just a normal everyday, part of life. It was part of their normal grooming regimen. It was kind of their version of hydrating conditioner or facial moisturizer. Um, And it was even a common thing that if you had guests over to your house, if you were going to be a good hospitable host, you would offer them some oil to use to, to rub on themselves to kind of refresh themselves after being out in the heat. And so this was just a common gesture of care and hospitality. And it was done, like he says, as James says, they were supposed to anoint with oil in the name of Jesus. So again, this is the elders, another way for the elders to show up and be a visible, helpful, restorative presence, visible reminder of Jesus, and that he hasn't forgotten this person who's struggling and suffering. He hasn't abandoned them in their time of need. And, you know, if I think if you are struggling, and, you, and your church family, you have people in your church family who are loving you and supporting you, you shouldn't say, I feel like Jesus has abandoned me. I feel like God's given up on me because he put us here to, to be that love, to be that support, to be that presence. And so James says that this prayer encouragement, this prayer and encouragement came in and offered by the elders. It will save or preserve the faith of the one who is weak. Again, the word weak is used in verse 15, and it's a different Greek word, but it's another word that could mean sick or weak. In fact, it's only used twice in the New Testament, and the other uh, usage in the New Testament, it's always translated as weak in the other spot. And for some reason here, they put sick, and I'm just not sure that's the idea. And so what we're seeing here, I think, is is James calling the church to show a relational, to put a relational investment in, into others, to encourage others, to strengthen faith in moments when we're feeling weak, so that nobody loses their faith in Christ, so that nobody drifts away from their faith in Jesus. And, and then James goes on to talk about something else that can destroy someone's faith, which is sin. He goes on and he says that if this person um, who, that responds favorably to the elder's prayer and support If that person, you know, like I said, responds favorably, um, if they've committed any sins in the meantime during their season of weakness, that those sins will be forgiven. Um, Now I can't tell you how many Christians I've seen who would get into a a season of suffering and pain, and then start making really, really dumb decisions, really bad decisions. Um, It's just so common for us to want to distract ourselves from how awful life is. Or to look for things that are going to numb the pain that we're going through, and most of the time, when we look around, we look for the in the most foolish places um, for those things. And and James doesn't just want us to to be encouraged; he wants to remove, help people who are t- t- who are trapped in sin to get out of that sin. So that again, because sin is another one of those things that can destroy your faith; it can trap you and lead you in kind of this spiral. Um, that just leads you farther and farther from Christ. And so James wants us to to make it a regular part of our lives um, of attacking these sins head-on. And he goes on in the next set of verses by saying that we should attack sin head-on by means of confessing our sins to one another. Let's go, verse 16. He says, Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So this partnering with other people in your church to attack your sins, your struggles, your doubts, is the best way, he says, to combat, combat the discouragement and the sin that can often lead to you falling away from your faith, and this idea of confessing sin is something that we never do. I mean, uh, probably unless you had a, have a Catholic background, confessing your sin to someone might be something that you have never ever done before. Um, you know, and it's mainly because confessing sins is scary. I mean, it means exposing the worst of yourself to someone else and hoping that they don't just completely freak out and like start telling you in a big lecture how horrible you are, or worse, betray your confidence and go tell everybody else how horrible you are. So it is, confession is scary, and because of that, we've just kind of gotten into a a way of living out our Christian faith where we just don't confess at least not specifically. I mean, we might say, oh, yeah, I've lied before. Yeah, I've probably cheated before. We kind of can generally admit that we've fallen into certain categories of sin. Um, But to specifically say, I've done this. I've given into this temptation. It's, It's a frightening thing. But I believe that every Christian must have a place where they can confess their sins to people who will be gracious to them, but who will also hold them accountable and support them in their work to put that sin to death. But because we don't confess, because we don't want to share anything, because we're locked up in fear, we just walk around carrying that shame, carrying that fear that others are going to write us off if they knew who we really were. And too few of us have experienced the freedom of confessing our sins and still receiving love. The freedom of unloading the shame and having someone still choose to love us in spite of having just seen the worst in us. And that's the Christ-like relationship that the church was meant to provide. Because I think one of the, the main ingredients of people who end up losing their faith is secret sin. Unconfessed sin that they couldn't get help with. They didn't feel the church could help them with. And so they kept it to themselves. And they walked farther and farther away from Christ until ultimately they left the faith altogether. But one of the missing ingredients of church and our battle with sin is confession. We have left ourselves with nothing but self-help and self-improvement, and that might work for some things, but James is saying that what we really need is our church family to join us in this fight against sin by praying for us specifically, that we would have victory over those sins. And he says, when other people come in and know your sin, when you've confessed it, you've been honest about it, and people come and surround you with grace and begin praying for your victory, he says, that's a powerful, powerful part of life that many of us have have totally left out of our faith. And he gives this example of how powerful these prayers can be by giving us the example of Elijah praying for a drought in the Old Testament and then again for the drought to end. And he says, Elijah, he was just a normal, broken, human, sinful person like the rest of us. But because he had faith in God and because he earnestly prayed, God listened. So when we truly love each other, in spite of knowing the worst at times about each other and the things that we've done, instead of gasping and gossiping, When we respond with earnest prayers, freedom and forgiveness are possible. God will hear those earnest prayers and give strength towards freedom and forgiveness. Now, those are powerful things to pray for. And these prayers that can save us from sin and and fear and shame and keep, uh, keep those things from overcoming our faith. And this is why I think James closes his book this way and with a beautiful pair of verses showing that, that how, how powerful this Christian support can be and how powerful it can be against combating a weakened faith so that your faith doesn't end up dying, so that you don't end up losing your faith altogether. He goes on to say in verse, verses 19 and 20, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, when we as Christians come alongside someone whose faith is weakened, whether it's through suffering that's made them doubt God's goodness, or whether it's through sin that has led them slowly away from their faith, when we encourage them, when we love them, when we serve them and, and become the living presence of Jesus in their life, If they respond positively to that, James says, then you just played a part in saving their soul. You just played a part in where that person is going to spend eternity. By by loving someone unconditionally, despite their mess, you just changed their eternity. You just kept them from spending eternal torment in hell that you might be the one who allows a person to be healed and restored from their season of struggle and from their um, chained, uh, chained uh, entrapment to sin. There we go. I found the word. And so ultimately, what he's trying to convey in this last section here for us is that in seasons of sin and struggle, there's nothing we need more than our church family. But unfortunately, when we're doubting our faith, When we're discouraged in our faith, we keep it to ourselves a lot of the time. And we just think no one can relate. Everybody looks so perfect. Everybody looks like they got their ducks in a row, and they believe so strongly that I can't admit my struggle. And also unfortunate is that we do the same thing when we have sin in our lives. We hide it away. No one will understand. No one else is going through this. They'll think I'm such a horrible person. They wouldn't care about me if they knew the real me. And James says the answer to our struggles, to our weakened faith, to our doubts and to our sins is isn't hiding it. It's fighting those sins. It's fighting that that discouragement with the love and the prayers of our church family. I mean, just imagine the victory that we are keeping people from experiencing, keeping ourselves from experiencing. Imagine the sins that we have let live in our lives for way too many years because we've just didn't want to, we didn't have the courage to open ourselves up. We didn't feel like we had a safe place to do that. Imagine the doubts that we've wrestled with for so long, doubts that might eventually derail our faith completely that we could have freedom from because we've just never talked about them before. We've never opened ourselves up and, and told our church family how much we needed that encouragement. Imagine the victory from sin that could be had, if people just felt they had a safe place to confess their sins, knowing that they're not going to be met with a lecture but with grace and prayer. If we had people, if we as a people, as a church family, knew that prayer was was going to be our first course of action in any situation, not our last resort. Not this thing we only turn to in in times when we needed something, but something that we did on good days and bad days. Something that we freely offered the people in our church family. You know, one thing I think we often get in the habit of doing, especially in our modern world, is we say something like, I'll pray for you. What if we stopped saying that? And what if we said, can I pray with you right now? I'm so sorry for what you're going through. I want to lift you up right now, and then I'm going to keep lifting you up after I leave. See, I'm just not sure any of our faiths could survive this long, hard road of life alone. Christianity was not meant to be a solo sport. You weren't meant to walk this road of faith by yourself. That's why God gave us the church. We were meant to have each other. We were meant to have a loving church family by our side to help us celebrate the good moments of faith, to help us celebrate the victories over sin, but also to to fight against the, the hard moments, to, to encourage us through those moments when we start to wonder if God is good. The, the moments when we need to feel God's loving presence, and our church family can be that for us. Those moments when we have stumbled back into a sin, and we need people to say, hey, that's not what you want. That's not the road you want to live. Trust me, God has something better for you, and I want to help you past it. We were meant to have each other. We were meant to be a part of a church family that loves us, supports us, and cares for us like Jesus.